How's it going there, Todd? Good evening. I was about to say, if you say good morning, it's not going to work. It's not it morning. Is it is so it is evening dark right outside. Now. It's great. It is I like, straight I up like dark this. right now. And this is a little bit getting to me mentally, but in a good way. What have you been up to? What have you been up to? Is the question, the million dollar question. Well, you know, just really leaning into Halloween. My nanny has really gone all out, decorated every wall in the whole great. house, which great. is awesome if she will kindly take it down when it's over. But <laughs> it, it, we're really in the spirit. We've got some, so many pumpkins. We're carving pumpkins on Thursday. I just ordered, my daughter has an amazing, it's like kind of, it's a punk rock skeleton outfit, which fortunately for me comes in adult sizes. So I also have the same outfit and Logan's an astronaut. So, you know, That's it'll be an interesting- most adorable little astronaut. That will be perfect. <laughs> yes. And then we'll just be punk rock skeletons and hang out with him on the side. So- Love that. Love that. Just excited for that. So, but you know, I know my life is super intriguing right now. What has been <laughs> happening with you? Well, I turned 40. So that was <gasps> That's right. I had a wonderful laser tag party. I know it because I'm five years old, but yeah. I telling you, you get a bunch of 40, late 30, early 40 somethings in laser tag and they all become competitive children and it is the best it was the best time we had it was so much fun we played two amazing games i felt like i was in a war zone it was amazing oh my gosh and so we i'm so had jealous that wonderful party and yeah i'm just in a nothing that day was going to take me down so i was no. just on cloud nine Loving yeah, life. I talked to you that had day on your way there, and you had day. the best wrist and headband situation oh, yeah. Oh, going yeah, it on. Yeah, was 80s themed. It was, it was 1980s 80s themed because I was born in the 80s. Yeah, it was perfect. Yeah. It looked amazing, and I oh wish God, I could have been you. there. Yeah, I was, I was looking at stuff my dear friend and roommate gave me a thing. Hang on, let me get it's right here. All right. So I'll take a moment. Here. She gave oh. me this thing that tells you everything that was going on the year you were oh, born. Cool. Like it tells you the top films were Annie. Hilarious. Oh my gosh. Star Trek, Poltergeist, E.T. And then like the cost of living, a U.S. post stamp was 20 cents. A gallon of gas was $1.30. Oh man, to be in 82 again. 1982. Yeah. Minimum wage. Well, this is crazy. Minimum wage is three dollars and thirty-five cents. Still kind of is. Okay. And the U.S. president was Ronald Reagan. Okay. So it's just Good this cool thing. Like it has all these things that was going on. Atari was very big. GI Joe, Smurfs. Oh yeah, this sounds very appropriate, especially for how you ended up. <laughs> exactly. GI <laughs> Joe, Atari, and the Smurfs all combined made Todd. <laughs> I love it. Well, it's why I needed therapy. No, I'm kidding. No. <laughs> speaking of therapy. <laughs> yes. Speaking of therapy, we have an amazing guest on today. He has been on before in season one and back by popular demand, mostly ours. We decided to bring Lair back, who if, you know, for all of our avid listeners, we've also interviewed his wife. And generally just like, I, again, it doesn't matter how many times we talk to this guy. He's just full of wisdom, thought provoking amazingness. Yes. hundred percent. And I think I should tell them a little bit about him. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. For those of you who don't know who Lair is, we're going to give you a little background. 
So Lair Torrent is a licensed marriage and family therapist, LMFT, treating clients from a holistic perspective, meeting them where they are and helping them to know themselves mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually. Lair sees clients individually as couples and as groups in his private practice in Charleston, South Carolina, or via Skype and FaceTime all over the world. In an effort to reach more people with his unique brand of mindfulness-based therapy, Lair also writes on the subjects that come up time and time again in his practice. He offers in-person workshops as well as downloadable versions of the same on subjects of couples healing, anger management, and much more. Lair has been sourced for his expertise by New York Magazine, Rolling Stone, and NPR, among others. He is the author of the book, The Power of Love. He is an avid surfer, spiritual journeyman, and devoted father and partner. So without further ado, Lair Torrent. Hello, Lair. Welcome back to the program. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, good evening. How you doing? This is a rare evening podcast. Yeah, but it has a good feel already. The energy between the three of us feels good. Do you kind of wish I had set more candles and stuff out? But, you know, <laughs> in general, it is feeling good. I agree with you. Yeah, maybe some fairy well, lights. I don't know. Yes. Oh, my gosh. That would look really good in your camper. Wouldn't that it? You're yeah. in, right? What'd you call me? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> So we're going to talk about bullying. (laughs) (laughs) So, Lair, we went over this in our last episode, but for those who haven't listened to that episode, which you all should, you should all go listen to it. It was a great episode. But can you please, it was great. Can you please explain what it is you do and what a holistic perspective is in therapy? Sure. So I am by license, a marriage and family therapist, which means you, you take a systemic look at any one particular client or couple that comes to the door, meaning sort of in shorthand, all roads lead back to mom and dad. Some of that's true. Sometimes it's not. So I have a sort of a dual track, right? So I look at things from that systemic marriage and family therapy perspective. I work with couples, I work with individuals, I work on our relationships. I say we have relationships with everyone and everything in our lives. If you think about it, we have a relationship to all the nouns in our lives. And so I help people with that. I do it from a Western clinical perspective, but I also do it through what most aptly would probably be described as an Eastern perspective. And so what that allows me to do is to sort of step away from that sort of clinical, let's look at you through that therapeutic lens. And I can look at you through the, you know, emotional, spiritual, um, that Buddhist psychology, Eastern philosophy perspective, which allows me to sort of take in the entirety of the client, mind, body, soul. What are your thoughts? What are your beliefs? What are your experiences? What's your wounding? All of that. So for me, it allows for a more holistic approach to include the entirety of the person. That's amazing. I think that like, we obviously touched it Touch on it. <laughs> Didn't just touch it. Touched on it I in our last something. Yeah. <laughs> our last episode with you. And for those that listened to it, you know, obviously thank you for listening, but also, you know, you really did speak to the you have a book. It's an amazing book. It's called The Practice of Love, but it also it incorporates everything you just talked about, kind of that there are kind of pinnacles of what we should focus on when we are in relationship with each other. And we touched on those five kind of guideposts of to connection in our last episode, but we never really wrapped it up. We, we talked about mindfulness, the parts of us, the narrative, Mm -hmm. and which is three of the five. And then the other two 
or choosing and personal responsibility. So I'm going to ask a big ask of you right now. Could you briefly kind of quickly sum up the first three for those that didn't listen to the other episode? And then let's kind of elaborate on the last two, because I think they're really important and informative to the rest of our conversation. All right, let me see if I can do it. So I believe that love should be a practice relationships and all of their incantations need to be a practice. If we want to do love relationships or relationships in general well, they should fall into the bin category of shit we want to know how to do well, things we practice at. So we practice the fundamentals. If you want to learn a new language, you practice those fundamentals. You need to know what they are, but you practice those. If you want to do a great backside turn and surfing as an example, or hit a great golf shot, you will tend to practice the things that you want to do well. Well, unfortunately, love and relationships in general have sort of fallen into the bin of things we should know how to do, like taxes and all of those things that we should just know how to do that when we come out of the gates, but we don't. And so I decided I was going to try and find some practices, some fundamentals that we could look at, that we could hone in on. The first one is mindfulness, as you said. Why? It's an Eastern perspective, but I don't believe that we can really change any habits, change the thing we're doing if we don't first push pause and take a look at what we're thinking and feeling on the inside. What we're thinking and feeling predicates our reactions. So we have to be mindful and aware of ourselves. And for me, it's the on-ramp to anything you want to do differently. You have to be self-aware. So mindfulness is practice one. From that mindful perspective, with respect to love and relationships, I ask, who shows up in you? We are not the single organisms we see staring back at us in the mirror. We are the many vestiges of ourselves. The brain is compartmentalized. You are a very different person that shows up to work, that shows up to your partner, that shows up to your kids, that shows up to your family, that shows up to your friends. What we know from brain science and from all of the great therapists that come before us, that these parts, these aspects of self come to play. We should be mindful and aware of who in you shows up. Like, is your inner critic here? Is your inner defender part here? Is your wounded child here? So when people wonder why they can't communicate with their partner, they think it's, oh, it must be, I must use a communication device, I statements and all the Imago techniques, all of that. Sure, those are great. But if you're in the wrong part of self trying to have an evocative emotional conversation, you are screwed. So like I say in the book, if you're in your Instagram account and you're trying to send an email, you can't do it because Instagram does not have that capability. You want to be in the right app. Same is true for the parts of us. If you want to have a loving, connective conversation with your partner, you need to be in the right app or the right part of your brain. That moves us over into, as you said, narrative practice three. We tell stories. We are all the editors of our lives, right? The things that we think create the things that we feel. We need to be aware of those thoughts because those thoughts create feelings, create more thoughts, create more feelings that create our belief systems about who our partners are and who they are not. If we are not mindful and aware of the part of us that's telling these stories, we will create belief systems about our partners that are only sometimes true, that are often faulty, that aren't particularly compassionate, empathetic, or understanding. And narrative work is so important. It was something that they sort of highlighted in narrative therapy is that we prune our narratives, right? We prune the narrative. We we select information that supports the prevailing narrative, and we deselect the information that does not support the prevailing narrative, which means, again, we are editors, and we need to know what we are keeping and what we are throwing out. 
So that predicates so many things. And you find out in the book, it actually predicates good sex or bad sex. It predicates how connected I feel over a lifetime. Okay, tell me this book again. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, well, again, it is the uh, the practice of love. The practice of love. That's right. Which yeah. Todd was supposed to read since last time. All I heard was it could promote, you know, great sex. So look, so much of good sex actually happens in the brain. <laughs> Familiarity kicks in. It's sort of like, yeah, I've been there. I've done that. That's a story. And we need to remember, like, we need to look at the stories we're telling about our partners because that's actually a human being. And I got dollars to donuts that says that if we allowed them to be the human being that they are and got really curious and looked at the story that we're concocting about them, we might actually find out that they are an ever-evolving puzzle to be solved. And that gets fucking sexy. Yeah. 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 Like, Mm -hmm. as much as you look inward at at yourself and know how many different layers you have as a person and that nobody really, or even somebody's like, oh, nobody understands me. Mm -hmm. You can think. There's so many, like, that's everybody. Everybody thinks that. So Mm -hmm. not that you're not special, not that we all aren't individually (laughs) special, but like if people looked more at the internal narrative they tell themselves and then thought about that's what everybody else is doing with themselves and that you are also coming up with your own narrative about that person. I mean, we're, this is inception at this point. Pretty much. And we find out that I hate to boil it down to something so simple, but sometimes life can be a little bit of a choose your own adventure. Mm. And I'm not saying, look, you can't stand in front of a weed filled garden and tell a story about there being no weeds. There are no weeds in my garden. There are no weeds in my garden. Expect to wake up and there are no weeds in your garden. There needs to be a partner on the other side that is actually doing things that would help you populate a good story about them. So it does take a back and forth. It's not just telling a good story, but we need to be aware of are our stories fair? Are they empathetic? Are they compassionate? Are they true? And we need to run it through the filter that I offer in the book to make sure of these things because our our narratives can just rot the hull of our relational boat, as it were, if we're not careful. Because we start to proliferate that narrative in the deep, dark recesses of our mind where we think it's no big deal. It's just a thought. We have about forty to 60,000 thoughts on any given day. So I can have a bad one here or there about this person. But if we start practicing that shit, right, those thoughts become feelings, become our experiences. And so when we have a thought, the body does this fun thing. Now, it was Eckhart Tolle who said it best. He said, the brain tells a story that the body believes. And so we have a shitty thought about our partner that's unchecked. It's not fair that, you know, maybe we're tired, maybe we're grousing at them for some reason. But if we do this consistently and the body fires off consistently in the negative direction, I mean, you can see how quickly we get to, I'm not particularly turned on by anymore. I'm not particularly interested in you anymore. And that becomes really important as the dopamine blast of new love wanes, right? When that dopamine blast wanes, that's when people line up at my door. What's wrong with us? What happened? And they start proliferating that not so great narrative. And then you add things like, I don't know, children. You add stress in life, pandemics, you know, job I don't like. We can begin with stress to also proliferate not great narratives that end up landing on our partner often. So we need to be really, really careful with this one. And what is number four is choosing? Choosing. Yeah. And so when I begin to explain it, people say, oh, you mean the five love languages? And I say, if you must, sure. Because it does sound a little like that at first blush, right? Like when I say, look, we need to know how to love each other. The three of us, each one of us in this particular conversation, we have different ways that we 
like to be loved, that we need to be loved. We like to be touched a particular way. We like, maybe some of us like physical affection, maybe some of us like words of affirmation. And all of those categories that, that he came up with are important. I think they, they do, I mean, it spoke to some people, obviously the book sold, but I feel like that book fell a little short in the sense that our love languages, the things that make us feel connected to and loved are actually directly attached to our core wounding. And if we're not really dialing into that for our partner, then we miss the boat. So we're just sort of obligatory, just doing things like, oh, you like words of affirmation. You look nice today. Sure. It becomes vastly different. And I outline this in the book when we realize that when we drill down below the surface of what makes us feel loved, it goes directly to four key questions, right? These are immutable questions that we are asking from the beginning of life. Am I loved? Am I safe? Am I enough? And do I matter? I'll say those again. Am I loved? Am I safe? Am I enough? And do I matter? When we come through the gates of life, we are actually asking those questions as little babies, right? We're asking those questions of our parents, of our families, of our extended families, and our communities at large as we move through the formative years of our lives. And if any one or two or three or four of those questions are not answered in the affirmative, we get a core wounding. And so we go through the rest of our lives trying to find that peace, trying to know that we are loved or that we are safe or that we are enough or that we matter. And it says Harville Hendricks said, we are inexplicably drawn into the arms of a romantic partner who will recapitulate that childhood wounding, right? So we're drawn to the people who will push those buttons in us, right? The M I love, the M I C S. Yeah, you see, you feel that, right? Okay, so just like Todd right now, I think is having an actual existential breakdown <laughs> or maybe just a pure light bulb moment. But I think this is a big point because yeah. people always kind of say, well, you're kind of drawn to if you you had issues with your mom you're gonna try to find your mom it's like well no like for real though you probably are for real though and it's it's not quite that simple but like because mom didn't make me feel loved those things that i call love languages actually make me feel loved or but i'll be drawn to someone who can't quite do it yeah over and over again until i find someone who can do this they hold the duality of it they push that button but they can also hold space for the healing because Hendricks finished that quote. He said, we're inexplicably drawn to the arms of a romantic partner who will recapitulate our childhood wounding, but for a very good reason, so that we might have a healing experience. And so we're actually looking for the person who can do both. Push the button a little bit so I can feel it, but also stay for the healing. I don't know what to say right now. I mean, honestly, Just I like actually have never, <laughs> I have never heard the end of that, you know, like the, the yeah. second part, like you always no, hear. People stop at that. They do. They just say you're drawn to, you know, whatever to heal yourself from childhood. You never think of like, I've always thought, well, then what's the point? What are we all doing here? Like now yeah. we're all just like reliving we're this over and over and over again. For each other. But the fact that there's a rhyme and a reason that that person actually will fulfill both needs to yeah. give you what you missed, but also to help you work through that. That's right. And not to heal you, not to fix you, not to become codependent and all that. So it's a, you know, it's like a fine line, but we want to be able to stay in there. And this is why love is a practice. And this is the thing I teach in the book. It's to find that ability to hold space for your partner's deepest, darkest wounds. And in that, 
If you can do that, if you can weather those storms with them, walk shoulder to shoulder down that path with them, they will feel a sense of love and connection and support, the likes of which, and understanding, quite frankly, understanding is what Ellen DeGeneres said. She said that being loved is wonderful, but to feel understood is profound. That I don't think any truer words were ever said when it comes to romantic relationships, to feel understood by someone, to feel seen. And so when people are having a difficult time and their warrior parts of self are going at it and they can't communicate, I ask them to stop, push, pause, and I teach them to look on the other side of their partner's warrior self. And what do you notice standing behind there? It's a part of self that didn't know that they were enough. There's a part of self back there, a little wounded child part of them that never knew that they mattered to anybody. And it's in that moment that we find compassion. But I have a question. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you can't expect your partner to also be your therapist. No, 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 no. So can you sort of clarify that for me? Because what I'm hearing is that you need to hold space for Mm -hmm. their pain and see their pain and say, I'm here for you. Mm -hmm. But, and I guess just doing that is part of the healing, but you can't expect to actively. No, not their job. They're not qualified. Yeah. Right. So that's what I want to, I want to make very clear. Cause when I first heard that, when you were first talking, I was like, oh, cause then you made the correction when you were said the part about codependency, you don't want to go into the, mm-hmm. down that road or no, anything. No. And so, yeah, I just, I, I think that that's a big you, point. You do it through compassion and validation. Yeah. Well, it, it honestly taught, it remind me of one of our favorite quotes that I like to post on like our Instagram and stuff of, from Brene Brown, that it's like, what we don't need in the midst of struggle is shame for being human. Like in that when you're, your partner is going through something, you're there to validate them and not to shame them and to be that safe space. That's right. But not the space, like not the only space that they they get everything out or work things through, but that you should be the last place that they feel uncomfortable going to. Right. I can be my broken self, but this is the problem. Most people stay above the surface and they argue over the symptomatic aspects, right? Like, I can't believe you said that to me at dinner last night, or I was so upset that you came home. Whatever the predicating problem is, when we drill down below the waterline on this, no matter what conversation, argument, fight we're having, most of the time I can find the woundedness in that that's fueling the fight, right? You're not fighting over the time or the, where we had dinner or where we didn't have dinner. You're fighting over the fact that I never mattered in the world. You're fighting over the fact that I don't feel safe not knowing where you are, right? And when we start talking in terms like that, you don't have to be their therapist, but you do have to recognize and have compassion for the fact that this person from that systemic perspective is bringing shit forward to pretend like it's I actually had a couple on the line today. And she told me, she's like, I don't want to do that. I just want you to talk to us about which house we should buy. I was like, that's your realtor's job, not mine. Yeah, I was going to say, why? Yeah. I said, listen, I can sit here and listen to you about what house to buy all day long. And they were on opposing sides. And how do we communicate about that? I said, that's not what's going on here. I said, there's a little girl inside of you that has never felt like she's enough. And you feel like you're bringing all this to the, the big boss, who's the husband, right? And these two aspects, and he's never felt love. These are actually the aspects that are at the table on this conversation about a house. And she said, well, I I don't want to do that. I said, well, I'm sorry. This isn't, I don't do this other thing. You should go find another therapist. 
because what's actually at play. And I said, we can put houses, we can put dinner, we can put the kids, we can put money, we can put sex in that same spot. We're still talking about the same two kids. And until you start talking about it, you're always going to have the same problems and you're setting me up to fail. So I'm out. Yeah. Boundaries on your part, just to be yeah. fair there. I just know that I know where it goes. Yeah. And look, I can set them up to be an annuity for me. They'll be in therapy with me for a long time. But we know that you're better than that, Lair. We exactly. know that you wouldn't do that. <laughs> it speaks to this last part. It's their own personal responsibility to sort of move towards that kind of emotional maturity. I mean, if That's right. I remember in our last podcast, you said like, oftentimes you're having to sit there and convince people that they have been through trauma. <laughs> like, yeah. No, and so, trauma. yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So if you could just speak a little bit to number five, which is personal responsibility. Sure. And so what I like to say is everyone imagine a chalkboard where you see the first four written mindfulness, parts of self, the narrative, and choosing and I draw a big old line underneath those and underneath that line I say I write personal responsibility now when I first put this way of working together I wanted mindfulness to be the common denominator practice as it turns out it's not it's personal responsibility personal responsibility means a bunch of things not the least of which is for in order for this to work and in order for a relationship to work I need to take responsibility for everything that I do and say, all the ways that I show up in a relationship. Now, how do you do that? Well, you take responsibility for how mindful you are, the part of you that shows up in the story that part's telling. And how are you choosing that partner? How are you choosing the most broken parts of them? And are you holding space? If you can do that, then you're cooking with gas in your relationship. Now, the second piece to personal responsibility is you have to be able to validate your partner's experience. You have to be able to own the fact that you make mistakes. You have to be able to say, I fucked up there. I spoke to you in a way that I shouldn't have. I did this thing that hurt your feelings. I might have made you feel unloved, like you weren't safe, like you didn't matter, like you weren't enough in that moment. And guess what? And this is why I have a job. Nobody wants to do it. It's like the jagged little pill that no one wants to take. And the convincing I have to do for people and this is why I don't put personal responsibility at the front of the book, because no one would read it, is I have to convince them that you are not giving up ground because people say, Larry, you're asking me to be too permissive. You're asking me to admit to things that I don't agree with. And I'm like, you have to agree they're actually having that feeling and they're having that experience. Now, you can disagree about your intentions, but some stuff you didn't said made them feel that particular way. So we get past that part. And what they end up finding out is personal responsibility is not giving up ground. It's actually taking the higher ground in your relationship. It's taking the emotionally intelligent precipice. It's what Frost said, you know, I came upon two roads in the wood one day and I took the one, I took the road less traveled and has made all the difference. Personal responsibility in your relationship is that road. It's the harder road to travel and no one wants to take it because in our culture, responsibility feels a lot like blame, feels a lot like shame, but the freedom on the other side of being able to own your stuff is unbelievable. Yeah. I feel like not only is that something I think everybody in all their relationships, even friendships, like familial, kid, parent, anything should be recognized, like recognize the, the personal responsibility you have when it comes to everything you do. And, and that it's almost like the ego 
gets in the way of any of that so many times. But the second that you do that, it's almost like a a release. It makes you feel better. It makes them feel better. I wish that more people knew <laughs> that the, the relief that you can that can come from doing that, even though it feels really hard to get out. In getting people on the other side of that, that's the tough sell. That's the one where I have to sometimes I have to like try to build in trust. And when I get there, I could say to them, just go with me on this. You're not going to believe it. And when they get there, they're like, I've had one client yelled up and I had this other office. He yelled up the stairs. It's just easier this way. (laughs) (laughs) I don't doubt it. You know, like even though there's so many things that you, you can fight and fight and then you do it and you're like, wow, I wish I had done that. 10 years ago, how much easier would that be than me dealing with it now? Almost like childhood trauma. If I had just like dealt with it earlier, it would be way less difficult to deal with it so much later. So kind of piggybacking off of this, you've mentioned before that you've had situations where you, and we talked about this in the last episode, that you've realized like a couple isn't going to work out, whether that be because one isn't there to like really show up or or maybe both of them aren't really into doing the work. But how do you handle counseling a couple where you can kind of clearly recognize the relationship is either toxic or you or a client that's involved with it believes a personality disorder might be involved, such as narcissism, borderline personality disorder, antisocial personality disorder, et cetera, those kind of things. How do you navigate that? Well, first of all, you know, there's a couple of things that predicate any of the work that I do with people. And that is you have to want to. And wanting to means you're going to do the hard work of pointing the finger back yourself and doing those, those five practices that I just talked about. Now, if someone's not willing to do that, there's no real relationship to be had. And so it goes a little bit deeper into if there's no responsibility taken at large in a relationship, there's really no relationship to be had. I mean, you can stay together, but it's going to be bad. Now, if both people are just sort of in their defender parts and they're recapitulating childhood wounding, but no one really wants to take any real responsibility and hold space for the other's wounding, and they just keep doing the same thing over and over again, typically I'll say, hey, guys, I'm about done. I'm about done. You can do this for free at home on your couch. You don't have to pay me to sit here and watch a Wimbledon match. I'm not going to do this with you. And very often, because I've built enough trust that they know, if hey, if Lair's tapping out, we need to get our shit together. And so they will often, you know, like, and that's not like a technique I use, but it's like, I get to a point where like, I'm not doing this and neither should you. And if you have kids, you should care that you're doing it in front of them. Now, when we bring in to the equation, major personality disorder of some kind. I'm very careful. I will often find a way. And look, I'm not in that habit of necessarily diagnosing. And I probably should say like, you know, diagnosing and labeling it's information. It does not equal the totality of the human, but it's information. And it's really good information. It's really important information. It might be not information that you want as their partner, but it's information that you need. And so I will for various reasons, because the toxicity will seep to the surface. And I will say for various reasons, I think that the couple's therapy is contraindicated at this point. I think we all can see that it's not working. Wink, wink to the partner who is like, holy shit, this person seems crazy. And I will refer them out and say, you know, you guys need to to seek individual counseling. And typically that means that that person who is not dealing with the personality disorder either already has or will seek therapy or will come to me 
and say, you know, what was going on there? What was my part? The other partner, typically when you're dealing with narcissism or borderline, as you pointed out, it's really hard to treat because they believe the narratives in their head about all of the things that they've concocted. Like they're, that that's the disorder, right? They buy into all the things they think. And so I'm fine. He or she's the one who was screwed up. Right. And you said that they can't really see you. No, no, no. And that's, again, this goes into the personal responsibility piece because there are borderlines and narcissists who wake up to it and recognize this isn't working, has not worked and will not work. And so they start doing their work and can take responsibility. And in that case, there is the possibility of relationship. But until responsibility is taken, as I said, just in the normal like boilerplate couple, if someone's not taking responsibility for the fact that they have a personality disorder, there's no, they can't see you. They can't actually see you. There's just really this idea of you and who they would like you to be. And you're not being that. So they get pissed. I honestly, now it's like, I don't know why this took me so long to kind of put the brain cells together. But, you know, we talked about this earlier before we, we were on air about the narrative. And I really, we were talking about the personal responsibility aspect of this, but the narrative seems so important now that I think about it, when you're dealing with somebody that really can't get out of their own head. I know that sounds so easy and simple, but like to actually, if you put it that simply, that if somebody is kind of toxic, it's almost even most people, if they're in a bad place or they act out or they're hurting you, that's because of them and, and what's inside their head. But when it comes to like a toxic individual who literally does not have the ability to think in any way that's even related to you, like that's really mostly about them. And then they just paint you as good or bad. And in that one moment, like there's no way to move forward with that. Like, how are you going to, it's dealing with like a four-year-old. You, you can't get past that moment. Well, right. And because of various aspects of both diagnoses, they won't believe you, even if it's a therapist. Often, you know, you have to do it so, 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 so carefully. And I wouldn't do it in the confines of couples because it, then there's the humiliation factor and feeling like everyone's against me because suspicion and paranoia is a big aspect of the borderline. And if you're offering it to a narcissist, well, you're going right up against this fallacy of who they think they are. And so it's a lose lose. And so it's really hard to get them in treatment and get them diagnosed for all kinds of reasons. Right, but so how would you counsel someone who is divorcing a narcissist or someone with a personality disorder, borderline personality disorder? How would you, how would you start off to get a helmet? Yeah. <laughs> and a cup and a mouthpiece and a strap in. Maybe some bumpy. boxing gloves. Got, I say that and I'm not, I'm actually, I'm being facetious, but I'm currently counseling a couple of people who are finding their way through that. and. It's tough, man. It's tough because, you know, now you've, you've gone from all good to all bad in the case of the borderline. You've become the enemy in the case of the narcissist. And so they're going to come at you and they're going to use your words and gaslight. And they, you know, the borderline has this narrative that they buy into. And it's often like sometimes with some of them, you're like, that could not. Yes, it was true. I was wearing a blue suit, but that's all that was true, you know, kind of. You know, you're almost like, how can this fallacy even be this, this fairy tale even be a thing that they think is real, but they do, they buy right into it. And so it becomes really crazy making. And so the thing I tell people, get yourself a therapist. If you're divorcing, especially in, with, with the case of a, a borderline, it's like, get a good lawyer, 
and be prepared because they're going to make everything that you try to, they're going to try and make it difficult. And so you might try like mediation, mediation. Thank you. Mitigation. You might say they're trying, they're going to try mediation. And yeah, I'll, they're I'll not going to do that though. Well, we can try, but they're going to blow that up. And typically until lawyers in the courts are involved, they're not really going to do anything you want them to do. And then maybe they'll do it, but it'll be difficult. Yeah, that that seems to kind of be a theme as we've done this podcast is when you're dealing with kind of a toxic situation and, and people that have that kind of disordered thinking, there's a lot of promises that if we work together, we don't need any outside help. Like, let's not bring anybody else in. And it's it's kind of an it's you hear, I guess, the reason that, that I like to keep bringing awareness to this is because it's, I think, a subset of when you talk about abusive relationships, people always say, oh, well, there was abuse involved. And nobody ever talks about like, why or where did that abuse come from? Why was that, you know, what is that predicated on? And I think a lot of that is insecurity, alcohol drugs. But all of that is also, there's a deeper root and reason for that as well. And so you're up against a lot. And so like to just kind of try to get into the mind of that person that you're dealing with, you have to kind of understand that they're working outside of the rules, like in their own head, they are not going by societal's, you know, they know how to pretend, they know how to say, we can work amongst each other. We're going to make this. Well, they're often very charismatic. And when, in the case of the borderline, they have a almost sixth sense about what you need and what you want and like your deeper desire. It's very strange. I know that sounds crazy, but that's true. Like they can sort of sense in you what you need and go right before that. Yeah. It's kind of in a way though, like you said, they're charismatic. They can sense like that, that kind of the same terms for a con man. There's somebody that... We have to be careful not to paint them as all bad. Yeah, they're not But in the the face of divorce, it can feel all bad. Yeah, but it's similar in that it's a smoke and mirrors kind of show. And it's unfortunate that it comes down to real life, emotional feelings and damage. Well, and that's what what it is, right? Like there is, especially in the case of the, the borderline, often severe abandonment of some kind. And so really they're coming from a very, what we would describe in from a clinical perspective, a very two-year-old perspective. It's like, you know, that what's that book called? I hate you, don't leave me. And that's kind of, it's called that for a reason. And so while they are often, as you said, their, their actions and things they do and say are often toxic, they are coming from an incredibly wounded, wounded place. And so you need a therapist who who has a, an incredible amount of compassion and, and an ability to handle this population just to give you folks a sense of it. The rule of thumb amongst therapists, as I understand it, has been, and this is what I was told by my supervisor, if you're not trained in DBT, dialectal behavioral therapy, which is essentially a form of mindfulness and a way to treat borderline as an example, you are allowed one borderline per practice because there are a lot and they will push boundaries the thing, the therapy, if you're a good therapist, you will offer them the th- exactly the thing that they, they need, but don't want. And that's boundaries. Which we're definitely getting to here very shortly. But I guess a, I think a kind of a burning question, since we've talked about this so much is, and, you know, just as a whole on this podcast is, should people like this that have this kind of disordered thinking, do you, do you think that they should really even be engaging 
dating or relationships as a whole? Is there a hope for recovery? Like, what are we, we're all working around them. Sure. Well, I mean, look, until there's awareness and acceptance of the fact that this is happening for me, and this is something that I'm struggling with, like if, if that person can have that awareness and take that perspective and take that personal responsibility for how they're wired, then sure, then there's, then there's absolutely a way. But the main problem is the lack of self-awareness, the buying into your own inner narrative and the belief that everybody else is wrong and I'm right. But to me, that's sociopathic. That's what I'm saying. Like, I don't want to say narcissists are sociopaths, but like there's a lot of characteristics in the stuff that I've read that some of it goes hand in hand with the manipulation and the calculated temperaments. And and I've also in my own experiences when I've been with I have been with people that are narcissists and I've noticed that there is a lot of push me, pull me. And I wonder you did tell us once that you had one client that was able to recognize that they had borderline personality disorder and wanted to work through it. Could you tell us? a little bit more about that? And is that person more of a rule of the exception? In my experience and the people that I work with, it's an exception. You know, as I said to you, she came in, she sat down and she said, before we start, I need you to know that I've been diagnosed with borderline personality disorder in which I stopped. And I was like, my bias immediately kicked in. I was like, okay, oh no, strap in, get my, where's my helmet, all the things. And she said, I need you to know that I believe it and I understand it. And I was like, okay. Because most of the time you might hear that. And then they're going to tell you all the reasons why that was bullshit and that they're wrong and that I'm not that. This person didn't do that. She said to me, she goes, this is absolutely true. I've managed to screw up the majority of the relationships in my life. I'm currently being treated for it. I'm being medicated for it. I have another therapist as my DBT therapist. And I'm currently married, have a child, and I just want to make this work. And I know that I'm... So what we're dealing with is in this particular couple, you would almost deal with it like you would chronic illness. We know it's going to flare up, but as long as we know it, and as long as we're preparing ourselves for it, then we can deal with it. And it's not just the non-disordered partner who's dealing with it. That person's dealing with it too. Oh, it's happening again. And so we can deal with it that way. It's a part of our relationship, but does not define our relationship. And so the answer for me is yes, these folks can be in relationships, but we have to really be on top of it. Is she a narcissist if she has awareness? Because typically narcissists are completely unaware. And if you tell them, this is who you are, this is what these characteristics are, like, but they can't believe it. They're incapable of, of comprehending that. So is she actually a narcissist? Is she actually a borderline personality? You know what I mean? Well, uh, so you're saying, does the awareness take away the... Yeah, the label. Like, if, you, if you're aware that you're a narcissist... <laughs> if a, a tree falls in the woods... You know, if a tree falls in the woods, is it making noise? You know, it's like... <laughs> is it making them a narcissist? <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people say, yeah, the noise was making you just weren't there to hear it. In the case of the borderline, she was still abandoned. She still deals with the inner four-year-old that does scream. She just doesn't scream as loud because she's been taught to notice her thoughts, to notice her feelings. And maybe she's going from, we worked from a parts perspective to go in and love that little girl that was left behind and to let her know that she didn't deserve that. And so, you know, do they stop being borderline? It's a great question. I don't know. I don't know everything. That's for sure. Well, I mean, I, th- <laughs> I think it was... A very introspective question, because if you really think about it, it's like, well, you know, kind of one of the pieces of 
a lot of this disordered thinking in general is that they don't realize they're disordered. So it's almost like AI. If they exactly start right. having awareness, are they now human? Like mm-hmm. it's, it's an interesting, I mean. yeah, yeah. Like- no, no, it's a very interesting perspective. And it's honestly, I do think it is more so the exception than the rule, but I think it's also, It'll give some people some hope, but I think that the majority should kind of understand that, you know, self-awareness is not always going to happen. Well, it's sort of like a recessive gene, you know? Yeah, yeah. There's a biological component apparently to the borderline and many, you know, perhaps can have that biological piece, but because of their circumstances and their environment, they didn't have perhaps a, an abandonment history that's not been activated within them. So are you, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's very interesting. So I guess if you were to be in in a scenario like that, or even just in life with somebody that it seems to come up more with these kind of scenarios, toxic situations where somebody is maybe not so self-aware, you said that if you can't forgive, you should use intolerant compassion. So what is that exactly? Could you elaborate for us? Sure. Intolerant compassion, it sounds like a oxymoron two things that just don't quite fit together. How do they fit together? Well, people come through my door all of the time and they're asking for to find forgiveness for a particular thing that's happened. And so I often don't know where that is. Like, I don't know where on your personal map forgiveness for this person may live. And so part of the problem of getting to forgiveness is there's some part of us that's like, I'm not letting go of that shit. That happened. If I let go of it, then we're going to forget. And I can't forget. And so what we want to do is we want to hold the duality of your experience, right? And that's more to the truth. And there's something about us and human beings. When we have our experience named either by someone else or ourselves, we get a little bit closer to healing, okay? The simple practice of naming, it's an age-old Buddhist practice, but being able to say, this happened, or I'm having this experience, it's like we can be pissed off and raging. But when we say to ourselves, man, I'm really angry right now, we immediately shave off a bunch of points right, of the, on the anger meter. So naming becomes really important. And that's, that's an aspect of this, of, of intolerant compassion. And so what this says is, I'm entirely intolerant to how you treated me, the things you did, the things you said, whatever that might be. And at the same time, I'm incredibly compassionate to the fact that you were a human being you were in a tough situation. You were flawed. You're learning. And so in this, we can hold the duality of that experience. This is really good with like parents who have messed us up. You know, so you have parents who are, you know, my mom was 15 when she had me. And so intolerant compassion for so many of the things that went down in my childhood would be like, I'm intolerant to the choices that were made, the things that we did, the things we didn't do or whatever it might be. But I'm also compassionate to the fact that you were a kid having a kid and I can hold space for that. And so that lets me take a breath into that. And that gets me a little bit closer to understanding and understanding gets me a little closer to forgiveness. Doesn't mean you have to have a relationship with them. Yeah. Yeah. True. Yeah. yeah. That's okay. very true. Leads us very well. <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about, we said we were earlier, we we're going to talk, let's talk about boundaries. Can you explain importance of boundaries and what they are and how they can help people in their day-to-day interactions? Well, boundaries say, this is where I stop and this is where you stop. This is as far as I'm willing to go. It delineates that line that keeps us safe. It can make sure that we are practicing self-love, self-compassion, 
We're not giving too much of our, our inner stores, as it were. And you know, people have a really hard time with drawing boundaries. They, you know, there's a lot of folks out there that feel a lot of shame drawing boundaries. They feel a lot of guilt, you know, because of some perhaps some of the things that the, maybe the way they were parented, they weren't allowed to say no. And so boundaries are tough across the board. I'm speaking incredibly generally because boundaries tend to be very, very specific. And it's like we talked about earlier, Renee Brown said, the most compassionate people tend to be the most boundary people in the world. Because if I'm not drawing a boundary with someone that I need to, or in a particular area of my life where I need to, what comes up? Like I might say yes to that thing. I might do that thing, give that thing, but I'm going to resent you for it. Super powerful. I think it's just the, it goes to the intolerant, basically being intolerant compassion, that whole concept of, I see you, I know what you want, but it's not something that I can personally deal with. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like, I just think that that's, this is, it's, it's almost like it feels like a novel concept at this point. Like, I mean, I've been preaching it and working in therapy with it for five years, but it's still not something that I feel like is like out there to the public that you're allowed to say, no, 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 no. Okay. You're great. Right. But people don't like when you do that. Some people don't like boundaries. You know, they just, they think that it's, how dare you set a boundary? How dare you tell me how I can speak to you? What's wrong with that person? <laughs> yeah. But doesn't that, I feel like I've learned that when you set a boundary, somebody's reaction to it can almost be more informative there than you anything you would now have known before it. that, you now know, that, that, it. that mm-hmm. response in and of itself validates why you set that boundary to begin with, because people will kick and scream and either they learn from it and they, they, they don't do it again, or they think it's absurd and they continue to, to kick and scream. And then that's when, you know, okay, that was a necessary boundary Not to stop. Person. Not my yeah. people, right? Your yeah. friend's going to go. The person who loves and cares about you goes, okay, I get it. I, I wish you were going to be there. I wish you would have done that thing or whatever. But your friend, your people are going to go, okay, I get it. That's your boundary and I'm going to respect it. Yeah. You know, that's a version of love in my book. I mean, you both are parents. Maybe y'all can speak to this, but is it easier to set boundaries with your children versus like with an adult family member? Hmm. Huh. That's a really good question, Todd. I'd mm-hmm. say it's He's full of them tonight, but I like, know. Oh my know, God. He's, he's like really enlightened. This must be the afternoon, Todd. <laughs> I honest personally, I find it much easier to set a boundary with my child because I also think of it and I should maybe think of it more the way that I do with my child with people is that I'm trying to make a better human. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to help this I owe human. This to you. I, I, I need to set this boundary because I, I don't to need the world you to, to tell you that. So I'm not raising a little asshole. I don't want that's an it. asshole. I don't want you to be go well, out into the that's world. That's the responsibility we have. Yeah. This is that I think in a way is a beautiful way to put it when you're setting a boundary for even a grown up friend. I mean, yeah. it's like, I'm, I'm not raising assholes. I don't want to be friends with an asshole. Come on, <laughs> yeah. let's get it together. But it does come more naturally. I feel like. Mm-hmm with your child, because for one, they're, they're much smaller than you and you can take them, but (laughs) mostly that they, (laughs) you feel a responsibility and you feel Mm -hmm. like it's going to do some good, that they're learning a lesson and, and you feel guilty as an adult trying to parent another adult, but you're not really doing that. You're, you're just setting the parameters for your own relationship. That's just my opinion. One of the things that when you're setting boundaries with other adults, 
friends, family members, and they really don't like them. And this, you know, with healing in my experience, both personally and professionally, with healing comes more boundaries, right? And so you're leveling up and you're creating more boundaries and you're saying no where you would have before said yes. You're not doing the things or showing up to the places that you would have normally. People are going to have feelings about that because you're changing the rules, okay? Everyone was playing Monopoly. You kick the board over and put the Scrabble board down. They're like, what the fuck's going on? What do you mean? And so the people in my practice, they'll say, I'm setting all kinds of boundaries and I feel great about me, but I'm kind of standing here by myself, by and large. And that's one of the pieces of healing that is not on the front of anyone's pamphlet, which is with healing. Often there's a boneyard of people who can't handle your boundaries. And so you start losing people. But the fun part of healing is, right? The fun part of healing is, is I might be alone, but I'm not lonely in my boundaries. Well, and those people are dropping like flies, but what's also dropping is the toxicity that was making you go to therapy. You know, right. yeah, <laughs> that's but you're healing the wounded. Too. You're healing the wounded child in you that needed to be around all these people or sort of feel connected in some fashion. Right. Or like you were a part of something. And all of a sudden you're like, as you hear, like, as you heal, you're like, I actually don't want to be a part of that group. Yeah. You kind of learn that you're, you look around and you're like, oh man, I picked, like people say, I always, my parents never really said this. So I just always refer to movies, but like, oh, they're hanging out with the wrong crowd. It's like, you're literally hanging out with the wrong crowd and you suddenly realize, okay, well, I don't want people to treat me badly. I don't want people to walk all, all over. Like, you know, when I say no, I don't want people to, you know, essentially make me feel guilty about this. And then everybody is gone. Then that means that every single person that you were surrounded by was not in any way a good person to be around like emotional pariahs Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. goodbye i'm sure that (laughs) they also have their unresolved trauma that they need to work through as well because it seems like they kind of people kind of you know magnetize to each other the wounded seem to magnetize to each other that's right and as you heal and as you set boundaries, you you will sort of push yourself out of those those places and those spaces with those people. Yeah. Well, okay. I'm going to ask you a question and it is in no way a reflection of what we just talked about, <laughs> just as a caveat. Okay. But we had the amazing experience of interviewing your wife, Ooh. Ashley, who is just basically an angel on earth. So <laughs> Ashley Torrent is the moment. She I is mean, the beat. She is everything that <laughs> everyone should strive to be on this earth. And I Todd am a Todd is starting a fan club as we speak. Um, we'll have <laughs> a link to sign up for it. But no, seriously, love her. Thank you for mm. your connection to her. We love yeah. both of you. She's we special. love everything about y'all. But we've obviously when we talk to her and and we follow you and everything you know we've learned that via that that you've had your own kind of trauma that you've just recently been working through Mm -hmm. and she also has her own Mm -hmm. so you know if you kind of briefly i mean Sure. Whatever. Actually, talk as much as you want about it. But what you're kind of working through and how you guys both deal with that trauma together yeah. with both having. I it. touch on it somewhat in the book as I, you know, most of the book is anecdotal and, and, and stories from my practice and from my life. And so she's in there for sure. But I probably could have written an entire week, probably still could write an entire book on how you as a person 
deal with, you know, systemic, pervasive childhood trauma or trauma from a former relationship that finds its way into your new relationship. You could write a whole book on that. And so the, the first part of our relationship was really predicated on this awakening that happened in her having had a severely borderline mother and how, you know, it sort of showed up. Interestingly enough, you know, once she was in a relationship with me and the, the confines of this relationship made her feel safe enough, I think that she could in concert with the school we were going to do that work. And so we were in this school called the Helix Training Program. I liken it to a gone to having gone to Hogwarts. And essentially it says, you can't work your own shit. You're not going to be able to help anybody else work their shit. You can't ask a client to walk a path you're unwilling to walk yourself. And so in that school, she was having these awakenings. And so how we handled it in our relationship is I began to understand that this was almost like a chronically ill person, as I said earlier in the podcast, and that love is inconvenient. And I don't always understand it, but it's my job to try and understand it. Loving her means that I don't roll my eyes and go this again, or I thought we were over this. Or as I said, at one point, and I put this in the story in the, in the book, I said to her, I said, you're almost a therapist. Use your tools. And we still joke about that. Full yeah, I'm sure that went very well. <laughs> not well. <laughs> did not go well at all. <laughs> but we laugh now because I was, you know, I was trying to fix it. And when I dropped my toolbox and just was present for, validated and loved her through it and showed her that because the person who was supposed to be the most loving person in the world was the most unsafe person in the world. It's my job to be safe enough, not to fix her, but to be a safe enough haven in this otherwise sordid world. And so that's what I've done. The majority of our relationship is to be present, to be safe. Sometimes I've been her big hairy bodyguard to make sure that the world doesn't hurt her. That's sometimes my job. Now, in that process of Helix, one of my instructors that I shared with you guys earlier noticed that I had this, this sort of hero complex with my mother, that she sort of saved us and she did. And she did, you know, she was a heroine by and large, but there was a lot of mistakes. And that teacher sort of sniffed it out and she started kind of asking probing questions. And I looked at her and I said, back the fuck up, leave it alone. I wasn't ready. And I was doing all my other work. But I refuse to really look at that because in order to look at that trauma, I would have had to look at our situation and her and possibly dismantled this vision I had of this person in my life. And that's fucking hard. That's really hard. And I would also have to deal with the fact that I have what was most aptly described as pre-verbal trauma. Now, pre-verbal trauma happens in utero often or before you can really speak. It's things that happen. So the body keeps the score as hard as uh, Dr. Vanderkloek in that book, beautiful book says the body keeps the score. It's a book on trauma. If you haven't read it, you know, it's a solid one to get. And so, you know, here I am in her womb. She's carrying me around for nine months, a 14 year old kid. Any of you have, I have a 13 year old boy. He can barely find his feet. So, you know, the idea that this, this young child was going to be a parent in nine months. Can you imagine the level of stress hormones that are coursing through her blood? They're coursing through mine. My God, no. Yeah. There's no so way that, for it not to. No way for it not to. And then add on top of it, severe poverty and really never really knowing if we were if it was ever going to end. There was no light at the end of that tunnel. They kicked her out of school for Christ's sakes, because that's what they did with girls back then. And so there we were. And so I'm feeling all of this as a child. 
and they put me in foster care for four months and gave me back to her. So there's that fun piece. And so my trauma lives in this sort of ever-present anxiety that for the life of me, I couldn't explain. I just knew it was there. And so it came out in all kinds of fun ways. And, you know, I tried to, throughout my life, drink it away, fuck it away, whatever I could do it away. I was trying not to feel how I actually felt, which was scared, fear, as if it wrapped itself around my skeleton. That's pre-verbal trauma. And so now my work is in trying to ferret that out and to understand it and to, as my wife so aptly puts it, have a relationship with it. Because for me, and I don't know that this is clinically true, that shit ain't going away anytime soon. It shows right. itself. Well, you said earlier, the trappings of trauma make it difficult to give the benefit of the doubt. It probably mm -hmm. showed up a lot with Ashley, you know, moving through your marriage. I can imagine that even with her, you know, she, we talked about her experience or with mm -hmm. her family. And, and you know, mm -hmm. she said that you were so patient and you loved her through all of that mm -hmm. stuff. And she's, she did not know love like yours existed. Yeah. That one got me. That's what she said. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, you know, it, it seems that you were extremely there for her, yeah. provided for her. And probably some of that did come from kind of your your respect and admiration for your own mother and women. like for women because of what you'd been through and how you don't want to acknowledge that your mom was in any kind of like that she had done any wrong. Don't make me go there. But at certain points, I'm sure that it was kind of hard to... I don't know, just accept like some faults maybe in women in general. Sure. Yeah. Have boundaries and hold them accountable and not do, 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 because some level you're just trying to make it all better. That's what I did, you know? So like as a teenager, I would do anything she asked. It didn't matter. Like she always described, described me as like, you're such a good kid. You're just such a good kid. You know, so I would you know, at 16, I was driving my grandmother to the hairdresser and on the way there picking up groceries and buying tampons and didn't care. I hope my friends saw me because I was doing it for my mom and all the things. I was a good boy cleaning the house, doing the laundry. And so to your point, was some of that in there? Of course it was. But that's maybe the the best aspects of how trauma might play out, right? Like, like that's a boon I got. And so there is that recapitulation of her childhood wounding as a as a person that she loved. I could leave her at any point or be shitty. But I was holding space and doing those things that had never been done for before. And I was showing her that the world could be a safer place. And it was really her, less than me, that had a hard time with benefit of the doubt always. I have a hard time with benefit of the doubt in the world around me. That the next meal is assured. That the lights are going to be on. That uh, that person doesn't have sort of nefarious. Like I have to, if I'm honest, it's like that's, it's people in the world can feel a little rough to me. And so that's how my trauma plays out. I have a hard time with benefit of the doubt there, although I, I do my best to, to watch it and keep, you know, and make sure that I don't build those narratives about people that aren't fair. I was just to say the true. narrative. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask, I was kind of like, what is the most effective thing that has been like to help you work through that? Like as, as far as therapizing yourself, if yeah. you will. It's been mindfulness, paying attention to my thoughts and feelings which is looking at that narrative, noticing the part of me that's up and to be able to name those parts of me and been problematic in that area and taking responsibility for that. And, you know, moreover, what I've come to understand is that having a connection to 
spirit for me, not necessarily God or anything like that. That word's hard for me, but energy, universe, spirit, having a connection to some idea that there perhaps is something larger out there, that's been incredibly helpful. And what we're finding is in the latest brain science is that's really helping with trauma. But that's the thing that's kind of moving the needle for folks is to having some understanding or belief in something bigger. I think that is like a very resounding and and wonderful thing to for everybody to kind of hear. Because I think the main problem, and from my own kind of random research of this as well, is that, you know, a lot of it comes from loneliness. Mm-hmm. You know, addiction can come from loneliness or disconnection. Boredom. Yeah, well, but like there's just a general disconnection from other human beings, but it can also, it seemingly is a disconnection from everything in life. So feeling as if you're- Yeah, including yourself. Because external pursuits that this world asks of us, we we often abandon ourselves. Yeah. And so it's like, if you can connect even to, if it's, it doesn't have to be God, but just like the earth, mm-hmm. the, the universe, For any me, of it. The ocean. I'm yeah. The ocean. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. You're a surfer. Like exactly. Just having something that makes you feel less alone and more connected mm-hmm. in some ways. That's what we're trying to do here by putting these random words out into mm-hmm. the ether mm-hmm. is to show people that they're not alone. Because the more that you feel like you are not the odd man out, like that you aren't the weird one, that you aren't the only one that's went through that, is going through that, will go through that. I mean, whether, especially with like anxiety, you can imagine all kinds of horror stories. So the more that you can feel connected, the less likely you are to drift into depression, anxiety, substance abuse. I mean, that's the hope. Yeah. And what I've sort of taken from this whole whole podcast today is like, you really have to take an active approach to your own growth. You cannot sit back and just expect. Yeah, it's not going to happen to you. <laughs> or even just your therapist to do it for you. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You have to be mm-hmm. actively engaged in becoming a better human. And everybody, please read The Practice of Love. I'm literally downloading the audiobook. <laughs> When uh, I as we this speak, podcast because there's been finally. so many mic drop moments. Finally, uh, I know this guy, this guy right here. I mean, I don't read, y'all. To be fair, he does not read, so this is not, not like reading, it's not personal. It's 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 global for him. But oh God, I no, ha- I have a, some directors. I'll show up to a show and I haven't even cracked open the script. And it's, Dude, oh I, my gosh! Honestly, that, I have, now I've had a I'm hard just time, in, like finishing books in the last couple of years. It's only very recently that I've like kind of dialed back in. I know once that happens, it's hard to get back on track. It is. Yeah. yeah. If you kind of get off, it is really hard to get back into the swing of things. And especially if you get kind of addicted to podcasts and like audiobooks. Well, that's the thing. People love the audiobooks. Yeah. The podcasts now. Well, well as we talked about earlier, it will the be audible the version of the book is also out. And right. we also know that Lair had to try out for his own <laughs> speaking part in his book. Yeah. <laughs> I Which is my favorite for, fact of this day. I had to play myself. It's great. You know? <laughs> the best. Whatever works. I'm glad you got the part. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought it was a pretty good me. How many <laughs> people were you up against? You know, I don't know. I, it was four recorded books, which is like, it's funny. You know, my kids knew I was writing a book and all of that. But it wasn't until I told them 
that I was going to do my audiobook on recorded books for Audible, that they were like, recorded books? All of our books are. This is amazing. This is unbelievable. Like, Diary of the Wimpy Kid. Like, they have a oh, big Oh, now you're famous to them. Yeah. They're like, man, really? you're really there. And so I don't know who I went up against. Oh, man. Oh, my gosh. They didn't tell you for your own book? I know the casting director. I could probably call him and ask him. Yeah, we're going to find this out. I want to know who is like up for it. We have a tradition on this show where we have a little bit of a palate cleanser and we have a question of the day. You might remember. (laughs) Yes. And so our question of the day today is, what is your biggest irrational fear? Emphasis on irrational. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess it depends on where I am. Oh, okay. All right. I'm ready for this. So if I'm in the water, it's a shark attack. Here. Yeah. Well, actually, here's that's not. That I don't know if irrational. that's irrational. That's uh, like a genuine concern, isn't it? <laughs> so, no, it's a like, look, I have my lucky pork chop around my neck when I go in. So it should be good. You know, you're hanging your legs in the water. You don't know what's in there. And like, there's a lot. There are sharks here. There are, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of sharky. It's sharky here. It's true. And so the other day, as Ashley and I are out in the water, she says, Lair, Lair, shark. And I was like, sure. No, come on. And I look. And there is a fin coming at her. And it's she goes, it's a black tip. And those are often known to be not awesome. And I go, so I'm sitting there and I have to ask myself from the book, I'm mindful of what part of me is showing up here right now. What part of me is going <laughs> to show up Going through every step. Right? And this is all going on in my head in a nanosecond. <laughs> because look, what I know is this. I don't have to outswim a shark. I just have to outswim her. Yeah. <laughs> And so in that moment, I'm like, okay, well, that's the dick part of you. You can't be that guy. I can't be, I can't be the first one to shore. That's not going to be a thing. Right. And so I say to her, swim towards me, swim towards me. And she swims, she's paddling towards me and I go, go to the beach, go to the beach. And I paddle past her and I paddle at that thing. Oh man. You went the whole opposite way. I went right at it. Okay. Son of a bitch. This is the mother of my children. Yeah. I'm going to punch you in the face. Pull up and I sit up on my board. And all of a sudden it stops and then it flits away. Uh, So I paddle back to the beach and she's standing there and she's like, what the fuck were you going to (laughs) do? And I said, honestly, the plan, the big plan was I was going to punch it in the fucking face. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Oh my (laughs) gosh. And I looked at her and I was like, I got to ask you how many guys in your life have fought off a man eating shark for Yeah. Right. What does that do to you? Even if they didn't get to punch him. (laughs) Best answer to question of the day ever. Just I know. My gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I immediately me. gave the irrational fear and then had the irrational feel realized and then surmounted it. Wow. This is a real therapeutic full circle moment <laughs> that we just circle. went through. Yeah. So is it now cured? Oh, no, no. I'm still scared. Okay. <laughs> I, I hope yeah. you will still swim at them and try to punch no, them in the face. I'm convinced it's out there and has a vendetta. Oh, oh yeah. No, it's probably got its friends <laughs> it's now. It's coming at me like orca. He told everybody else. So now they're all coming back. They're like, oh, that guy, he was totally going to punch me in the face. I that could guy, feel it. He's crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
Yeah. Well, we can't thank you enough, one. Blair, for coming on the program. You've been such a rock star. And we honestly both, I mean, there were some many, many, many mic drop moments. And I'm going to tell literally everyone to listen to this episode because, you know, so. I think someone can, anyone can take at least one or two things from this episode. And it's pretty transformative. So we really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's easily my favorite is to come on and talk with you guys. You're so much fun. As I said, you know, as our pre at our pre conversation, we probably should have just taped that. I know. I know. We'll, we'll just start doing that. We'll just have convos over just Zoom and, and record yeah, a call, big bonus episode. In the middle of the day, make it a surprise. Just like yes. I yeah. love this. And then we'll <laughs> throw random weird questions at you about right, sharks. Right. Lair, what's the narrative you're telling to yourself today? You know, just call you. <laughs> what's the narrative of today? Yeah, All right. All right. Well, you have been awesome. Thank you so much. You're definitely going to be back because this is our new thing. But have a wonderful evening and we will talk to you soon. Take care. All right. Bye, guys. Bye. God, he's good. I know. I'm just such a fan, you know? What'd you think? I mean, I thought all around, again, he gave us a different way of looking at everything also validated all my feelings and in general, you know, summed it up with an amazing shark story. So I don't know which more, what more we, we can ask for at this point. Exactly. And, you know, I really am going to go download that yeah. book, his book, The, the Practice, Practice of, of Love, Love, which everybody should go buy it right now. And I have listened to it as well as even highlighted parts of the actual book, because a lot of our quotes come from some of the ones that he's he's put in his book. Yeah. But it is a really, really good book. It really just lays it out there. Like, you know, the, there's no excuses. There's no reason to argue with it. It all makes sense. It works for regular relationships, friendships, bad relationships, all of it. One thing I really, really appreciated about today was him saying the importance of boundaries yeah. and what they are in our lives and how they can be healthy. And even if you get to the point where you've set boundaries with everybody and you're the only one standing there, then maybe you'll start to live being the body of your most authentic self. Yeah. And I think something that we didn't really get a chance to dive into, but like once you start doing that, other people will follow suit as well. Cause it's almost like people think that they can't do that. And then when they see other people doing it, like, Oh, that's allowed. Mm -hmm. Like I'm allowed to say that I don't want that. And I don't want to also don't want to change who you are in their story. Yeah. So if you're the person who always takes their crap mm-hmm. or doesn't speak up when you're, you know what, I really don't want you speaking to me like that. You always do. Yeah. You always let me. What do you mean? Why all of a sudden are you like this? Why all of a sudden for them, it's very sudden that these boundaries yeah. are coming up. But for you, it's like, it's been building. Yeah. For no, I really wanted to I've say this hints. for quite some time, but uh, <laughs> I just didn't really have the opportunity. No, I think a thousand percent. And the other thing, this, the personal responsibility part. Like that speaks to me so, and the narrative, the narrative, oh my God, the things we tell our, the story we tell ourselves Mm -hmm. and how that is so important in a relationship. You know, when you look at your person and you can either say, you know, you can either tell the narrative of the good things about them and the, and the happy things that you're doing with them instead of, oh God, he didn't take out the trash again. What? Yeah. I mean, it's it's like always the, the same thing where people always give you advice about, well, You know, just think happy thoughts. Like genuinely, if you focus on the good or the bad, that is where it's going to eventually lead. So it doesn't have to be every single thought. 
but what we focus on grows. Yeah. If there's anything I've really learned throughout this whole process is that, you know, one, boundaries are amazing, but two, that the things that you put the most thoughts and just effort towards are the things that will continue to grow and that's good or bad. 100%. 100% you put stock in the negative, the negative will grow. Oh, yeah. And him talking about specifically narcissists in general, mm-hmm. the fact that he said that they can't really see you and it's sometimes like negotiating with a terrorist, yeah. it could not be more on the money, I think. And for anyone who out there who is either married to a narcissist or dating a narcissist or you suspect that someone has a, a borderline personality disorder. Or just toxic. You know, if it's just Or just like, toxic. We can label it all we want. Yeah, like you said. We can like, you know, diagnose people all we want. But if the signs are there that they're just not a good person for you, just get out. Life is too short. Oh my gosh, so true. That's one thing that this new generation is is all about. You know, they're, they are pushing the envelope with that. I don't have to stay in this relationship. I don't have to stay married to this person if they're toxic. Or even get into a relationship. You know, exactly. like don't even have to for my worth is not based on another human being. And I think that that should really be the mantra. That's my new mantra. My worth is not based on another human being. I think I honestly have spent too much of my life basing my own self-worth on what other people think. And 100%. I feel like this. Well, you know, those people are beneath your dignity. Mm-hmm. Well, and even if they're not, it still shouldn't <laughs> dictate who I am as a person. 100%. Like, even if there's a bunch of people groveling at my feet, that doesn't mean that they're good people. Like, you know, if they're, even if somebody's like, you're the most amazing person that's ever happened, like, that doesn't tell me who I am as a person. Just that a bunch of other people think I'm amazing. Is this, and it goes both ways. So it's standing in your worth and recognizing that you know, first of all, it's not all about you. And that's what the, the problem we're dealing with anyways, with people with disordered thinking or narcissism or whatever, is that they, it is all about them and their minds. And that's where the narrative comes from. But that in your own narrative, you know, it's not that it's not all about you, but it's that you have a positive impact on your own self-worth. So mm-hmm. put yourself as close to first as you do everybody else. Well, and the thing that Remember when Lair at the beginning of the podcast started talking about, you know, the the questions, the four questions that we asked just from infancy, which were, you know, am I loved? Am I safe? Am I enough? And do I matter? And that that kind of got me choked up in the beginning. I was very moved by that because it's so true. That's the core of every of everyone's human experience. That's what we think. It is. And I think the most beautiful like messages I've ever been sent have been things that are like, just remember you are loved. And now I'm realizing why (laughs) this struck such a chord. But no, I think that that everything, once again, layer torrent, just bringing the truth, the truth bombs. And and if anything, just striking up a conversation about all of this and how important it is to, like you said in the interview, put effort in. If you want to do, you have to do the work. You can't just rely on a therapist to do the work for you. You can't rely on... Got to play an active role. Got to. Yeah. Because no one's going to do it for you. Yeah. You, no one can do it for you. People are incapable of fixing you or healing you. You have to take part in healing yourself. It's like everything else in life. It's like we can't expect everybody... No. That everybody's going to do what we want them to do. Exactly. It's the same way. You can't expect... 
that you're gonna some magic fairy godmother is gonna come, but maybe no, she but will. I, I don't but know. let's definitely check out the book. I mean, I know you've read it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go actually read it. Go <laughs> check it out from the library. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but we still love. have to answer the question of the day. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So Laura, I'll ask you first. What is your biggest irrational fear? I don't know if this is irrational because I'm very convinced that it's a thing that is unnatural. So snakes as a, as a species should not exist. There is no reason for them to be able to literally, if you look at a slow motion of them moving on the ground, they are kind of dancing their way about. They have no feet. Why do we trust them? I don't understand this. And even if you tell me, that they are, oh, this one's non-poisonous, non-venomous. Look for the, the shapes of their head. No, they're all wrong. Every part of them is wrong. <laughs> I, just, I just, I can't with them. But I will say my other one is that if I put my feet down, like off the side of the bed or like out of my car without like knowing it's definitely irrational fear that somebody's going to come and slit, like slice the back of my Achilles heel. The Achilles. Oh God. Yeah. And it's, it's, Ouch. it's very, it's constant. I can't get it out of my head. So now great tonight. Can't touch the, the floor getting in or out of bed. <sighs> so now that I've went, I've done that journey. <laughs> what is your biggest irrational fear? It's so funny that you said snakes because <laughs> that's why I was putting my head in my hand when you said it. Because <laughs> I thought you were just like, you're ridiculous. My biggest irrational fear, Kim, <laughs> I'm saying this on air, I have to look two or three times in the toilet before I take a poopy because I'm afraid a snake is going to crawl oh my out God. through, out through Todd, under the through This the, is through not the irrational. <laughs> Did you see the movie The Craft? Yes. That's where oh, that came maybe from. That's, maybe that's where There's that came from. Snake Damn that you, comes out bulk. of the toilet. And you're like, wow, as if snakes couldn't be bad enough. <laughs> but that's, that's literally, I think one's going to come up and like, I don't know, bite my asshole off or something. I don't know, you know? It's or just, just weasel its way in there. Weasel its way, you know, it's just, you know, it, yeah, I can't. I can't. I'm just scared I'm going to get like, you're going to die from an ass biting, you know? Like oh a snake my gosh, ass I will say, I'll say that's a little more rational than just general fear, but still. But there's not a snake in the drain. There's not a snake in the pipe. But you know what? They If they can get anywhere. Laura, I swear it's to God, don't, you're going to make it worse. <laughs> if they can oh. dance along the the soil, how oh my God. think about what water could do. Oh, my God. Oh okay. God. Everybody okay. out there that is also afraid of snakes, it's not going to happen. You're fine. You're they fine. Live outside. Everyone, you're fine. Everything's fine. <laughs> we're, we're on a trauma podcast and we're just <laughs> causing more trauma by talking about irrational fears. Great. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> yeah. You're welcome for that question of the day. And But this, you know, to be fair, this was a wonderful podcast because it was a mixture of deep and fun and laughter and just self-reflection of how ridiculous we are sometimes as people. Exactly. And Lair cried. He shed a tear. He did. Oh my gosh. So I kind of feel a little wife. bit empowered. Because <laughs> oh, we got him to cry. <laughs> get him to cry. But no, the code. no, I think that, but that shows true love and that's why we love them so much and they exactly. will be back. We're going to have them back on together, I think. That would be great to have them, back, them both on at the same time. Mm, I think that's the see next See them move. interact. They mm -hmm. should have a reality show. Let's talk about this later. All right. <laughs> All right. Okay. I love you. I'll see you next week. Love you week. too. 
Right, bye. bye.